Chapter One, Volume One of The Last Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The Last Man by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Volume One, Chapter One. I am the native of a sea surrounded nook. A cloud-enshadowed land which, when the surface of the globe, with its shoreless ocean and trackless continents, presents itself to my mind, appears only as an inconsiderable speck in the immense whole. And yet, when balanced in the scale of mental power, far outweighed countries of larger extent and more numerous population. So true it is that man's mind alone was the creation of all that was good or great to man, and that nature herself was only his first minister. England, seated far north in the turbid sea, now visits my dreams in the semblance of a vast and well-mannered ship, which mastered the winds and rode proudly over the waves. In my boyish days she was the universe to me, when I stood on my native hills and saw plain and mountain stretch out to the utmost limits of my vision, speckled by the dwellings of my countrymen, and subdued to fertility by their labours, the earth's very centre was fixed for me in that spot, and the rest of her orb was as a fable, to have forgotten which would have cost neither my imagination nor understanding an effort. My fortunes have been, from the beginning, an exemplification of the power that mutability may possess over the very tenor of man's life. With regard to myself, this came almost by inheritance. My father was one of those men, on whom nature had bestowed prodigality, the envied gifts of wit and imagination, and then left his bark of life to be impelled by these winds, without adding reason as the rudder, or judgment as the pilot for the voyage. His extraction was obscure, but circumstances brought him early into public notice, and his small paternal property was soon dissipated in the splendid scene of fashion and luxury in which he was an actor. During the short years of thoughtless youth, he was adored by the high-bred triflers of the day, nor least by the youthful sovereign, who escaped from the intrigues of party and the arduous duties of kingly business, to find never-ending amusement and exhilaration of spirit in his society. My father's impulses, never under his own control, perpetually led him to difficulties from which his ingenuity alone could extract him, and the accumulating pile of debt of honour and of trade, which would have bent to earth any other, was supported by him with a light spirit and tameless hilarity. While his company was so necessary at the tables and assemblies of the rich, that his derelictions were considered venial, and he himself received with intoxicating flattery. This kind of popularity, like every other, is evanescent, and the difficulties of every kind with which he had to contend, increased in a frightful ratio compared with his small means of extracting himself. At such times the king, in his enthusiasm for him, would come to his relief, and then kindly take his friend to task. 
my father gave the best promises for amendment. But his social disposition, his craving for the usual diet of admiration, and more than all, the fiend of gambling, which fully possessed him, made his good resolutions transient, his promises vain. With the quick sensibility peculiar to his temperament, he perceived his power in the brilliant circle to be on the wane. The king married, and the haughty princess of Austria, who became, as queen of England, the head of fashion, looked with harsh eyes on his defects, and with contempt on the affection her royal husband entertained for him. My father felt that his fall was near, but so far from profiting by this last calm before the storm to save himself, he sought to forget anticipated evil by making still greater sacrifices to the deity of pleasure, deceitful and cruel arbiter of his destiny. The king, who was a man of excellent dispositions, but easily led, had now become a willing disciple of his imperious consort. He was induced to look with extreme disapprobation, and at last with distaste, on my father's imprudence and follies. It is true that his presence dissipated these clouds. His warm-hearted frankness, brilliant sallies, and confiding demeanour were irresistible. It was only when, at a distance, while still renewed tales of his errors were poured into his royal friend's ears, that he lost his influence. The Queen's dexterous management was employed to prolong these absences, and gather together accusations. At length the king was brought to see him in a source of perpetual disquiet, knowing that he should pay for the short-lived pleasure of his society by tedious homilies, and more painful narrations of excess, the truth of which he could not disprove. The result was, that he would make one more attempt to reclaim him, and, in case of ill success, cast him off for ever. Such a scene must have been one of deepest interest and high-wrought passion. A powerful king, conspicuous for a goodness which had heretofore made him meek, and now lofty in his admonitions, with alternate entreaty and reproof, besought his friend to attend to his real interests, resolutely to avoid those fascinations which in fact were fast deserting him, and to spend his great powers on a worthy field in which he, his sovereign, would be his prop, his stay, and his pioneer. My father felt this kindness. For a moment ambitious dreams floated before him, and he thought it would be well to exchange his present pursuits for nobler duties. With sincerity and fervour he gave the required promise. As a pledge of continued favour, he received from his royal master a sum of money to defray passing debts, and enable him to enter under good auspices his new career. That very night, while yet full of gratitude and good resolves, this whole sum, and its amount doubled, was lost at the gambling-table. In his despair to repair his first losses, my father risked double stakes and thus incurred a debt of honour he was wholly unable to pay. Ashamed to apply again to the king, he turned his back upon London, 
its false delights in clinging miseries, and, with poverty for his sole companion, buried himself in solitude among the hills and lakes of Cumberland. His wit, his bon mots, the record of his personal attractions, fascinating manners and social talents, were long remembered and repeated from mouth to mouth. Ask where now was this favourite of fashion, this companion of the noble, this excelling beam, which gilt with alien splendour the assemblies of the court and the gay. You heard that he was under a cloud, a lost man. Not one thought it belonged to him to repay pleasure by real services, or that his long reign of brilliant wit deserved a pension on retiring. The king lamented his absence. He loved to repeat his sayings, relate the adventures they had had together, and exalt his talents. But here ended his reminiscence. Meanwhile my father, forgotten, could not forget. He repined for the loss of what was more necessary to him than air or food, the excitements of pleasure, the admiration of the noble, the luxurious and polished living of the great. A nervous fever was the consequence, during which he was nursed by the daughter of a poor cottager, under whose roof he lodged. She was lovely, gentle, and above all kind to him. Nor can it afford astonishment that the late idol of high-bred beauty should, even in a fallen state, appear a being of an elevated and wondrous nature to the lowly cottage girl. The attachment between them led to the ill-fated marriage of which I was the offspring. Notwithstanding the tenderness and sweetness of my mother, her husband still deplored his degraded state. Unaccustomed to industry, he knew not in what way to contribute to the support of his increasing family. Sometimes he thought of applying to the king. Pride and shame for a while withheld him, and before his necessities became so imperious as to compel him to some kind of exertion, he died. For one brief interval before this catastrophe, he looked forward to the future, and contemplated with anguish the desolate situation in which his wife and children would be left. His last effort was a letter to the king, full of touching eloquence and of occasional flashes of that brilliant spirit which was an integral part of him. He bequeathed his widow and orphans to the friendship of his royal master, and felt satisfied that, by this means, their prosperity was better assured in his death than in his life. This letter was enclosed to the care of a nobleman, who, he did not doubt, would perform the last and inexpensive office of placing it in the king's own hand. He died in debt, and his little property was seized immediately by his creditors. My mother, penniless and burthened with two children, waited, week after week, and month after month, in sickening expectation of a reply, which never came. She had no experience beyond her father's cottage, and the mansion of the lord of the manor was the chiefest type of grandeur she could conceive. During my father's life, she had been made familiar with the name of royalty and the courtly circle. But such things, ill-according with her personal experience, appeared, after the loss of him, who gave substance and reality to them, vague and fantastical. 
if, under any circumstances, she could have acquired sufficient courage to address the noble persons mentioned by her husband. The ill success of his own application caused her to banish the idea. She saw, therefore, no escape from dire punery. Perpetual care, joined to sorrow for the loss of the wondrous being, whom she continued to contemplate with ardent admiration, hard labour and naturally delicate health, at length released her from the sad continuity of want and misery. The condition of her orphan children was peculiarly desolate. Her own father had been an emigrant from another part of the country, and had died long since. They had no one relation to take them by the hand. They were outcasts, paupers, unfriended beings, to whom the most scanty pittance was a matter of favour, and who were treated merely as children of peasants, yet poorer than the poorest, who, dying, had left them a thankless bequest to the close-handed charity of the land. I, the elder of the two, was five years old when my mother died. A remembrance of the discourses of my parents, and the communications which my mother endeavoured to impress upon me concerning my father's friends, in slight hope that I might one day derive benefit from the knowledge, floated like an indistinct dream through my brain. I conceived that I was different and superior to my protectors and companions, but I knew not how or whereof. The sense of injury, associated with the name of king and noble, clung to me, but I could draw no conclusions from such feelings, to serve as a guide to action. My first real knowledge of myself was as an unprotected orphan among the valleys and fells of Cumberland. I was in the service of a farmer, and with crook in hand, my dog at my side, I shepherded a numerous flock on the near uplands. I cannot say much in praise of such a life, and its pains far exceeded its pleasures. There was freedom in it, a companionship with nature, and a reckless loneliness. But these, romantic as they were, did not accord with the love of action and desire for human sympathy, characteristic of youth. Neither the care of my flock, nor the change of seasons, was sufficient to tame my eager spirit. My outdoor life and unemployed time were the temptations that led me early into lawless habits. I associated with other friendless like myself. I formed them into a band. I was their chief and captain. All shepherd boys alike, while our flocks were spread over the pastures, we schemed and executed many a mischievous prank, which drew on us the anger and revenge of the rustics. I was the leader and protector of my comrades, and as I became distinguished among them, their misdeeds were usually visited upon me. But while I endured punishment and pain in their defence, with the spirit of a hero, I claimed as my reward their praise and obedience. In such a school my disposition became rugged but firm. The appetite for admiration and small capacity for self-control which I inherited from my father, nursed by adversity, made me daring and reckless. I was rough as the elements, and unlearned as the animals I tended. I often compared myself to them, and finding that my chief superiority consisted in power, 
I soon persuaded myself that it was in power only that I was inferior to the chiefest potentates of the earth. Thus untaught in refined philosophy, and pursued by a restless feeling of degradation from my true station in society, I wandered among the hills of civilized England, as uncouth as savage as the wolf-breed founder of old Rome. I owned but one law. It was that of the strongest, and my greatest deed of virtue was never to submit. Yet let me a little retract from this sentence I have passed on myself. My mother, when dying, had, in addition to her other half-forgotten and misapplied lessons, committed, with solemn exhortation, her other child to my fraternal guardianship, and this one duty I performed to the best of my ability, with all the zeal and affection of which my nature was capable. My sister was three years younger than myself. I had nursed her as an infant, and, when the difference of our sexes, by giving us various occupations, in a great measure divided us, yet she continued to be the object of my careful love. Orphans, in the fullest sense of the term, we were poorest among the poor, and despised among the unhonoured. If my daring and courage obtained for me a kind of respectful aversion, her youth and sex, since they did not excite tenderness by proving her to be weak, were the causes of numberless mortifications to her, and her own disposition was not so constituted as to diminish the evil effects of her lowly station. She was a singular being, and, like me, inherited much of the peculiar disposition of our father. Her countenance was all expression. Her eyes were not dark, but impenetrably deep. You seemed to discover, space after space, in their intellectual glance, and to feel that the soul which was their soul comprehended a universe of thought in its ken. She was pale and fair, and her golden hair clustered on her temples, contrasting its rich hue with the living marble beneath. Her coarse peasant dress, little consonant apparently with the refinement of feeling which her face expressed, yet in a strange manner recorded with it, she was like one of Guido's saints, with heaven in her heart and in her look, so that when you saw her, you only thought of that within, and costume and even feature were secondary to the mind that beamed in her countenance. Yet, though lovely and full of noble feeling, my poor Perdita, for this was the fanciful name my sister had received from her dying parent, was not altogether saintly in her disposition. Her manners were cold and repulsive. If she had been nurtured by those who had regarded her with affection, she might have been different. But unloved and neglected, she repaid want of kindness with distrust and silence. She was submissive to those who held authority over her, but a perpetual cloud dwelt on her brow. She looked as if she expected enmity from every one who approached her, and her actions were instigated by the same feeling. All the time she could command she spent in solitude. She would ramble to the most unfrequented places, and scale dangerous heights, that in those unvisited spots she might wrap herself in loneliness. 
Often she passed whole hours walking up and down the paths of the woods. She wove garlands of flowers and ivy, or watched the flickering of the shadows and glancing of the leaves. Sometimes she sat beside a stream, and as her thoughts passed, threw flowers or pebbles into the waters, watching how those swam and these sank. Or she would set afloat boats formed of bark of trees or leaves, with a feather for a sail, and intensely watched the navigation of her craft among the rapids and shallows of the brook. Meanwhile her active fancy wove a thousand combinations. She dreamt of moving accidents by flood and field. She lost herself delightedly in these self-created wanderings, and returned with unwilling spirit to the dull detail of common life. Poverty was the cloud that veiled her excellences, and all that was good in her seemed about to perish from want of the genial dew of affection. She had not even the same advantage as I in the recollection of her parents. She clung to me, her brother, as her only friend, but her alliance with me completed the distaste that her protectors felt for her, and every error was magnified by them into crimes. If she had been bred into that sphere of life to which, by inheritance, the delicate framework of her mind and person was adapted, she would have been the object almost of adoration, for her virtues were as eminent as her defects. All the genius that ennobled the blood of her father illustrated hers. A generous tide flowed in her veins. Artifice, envy, or meanness were at the antipodes of her nature. Her countenance, when enlightened by amiable feeling, might have belonged to a queen of nations. Her eyes were bright, her look fearless. Although by our situation and dispositions, we were almost equally cut off from the usual forms of social intercourse. We formed a strong contrast to each other. I always required the stimulations of companionship and applause. Perdita was all sufficient to herself. Notwithstanding my lawless habits, my disposition was sociable, hers recluse. My life was spent among tangible realities, hers was a dream. I might be said even to love my enemies, since, by exciting me, they, in a sort, bestowed happiness upon me. Perdita almost disliked her friends, for they interfered with her visionary moods. All my feelings, even of exultation and triumph, were changed to bitterness, if unparticipated. Perdita, even in joy, fled to loneliness and could go on from day to day, neither expressing her emotions, nor seeking a fellow-feeling in another mind. Nay, she could love and dwell with tenderness on the look and voice of her friend, while her demeanour expressed the coldest reserve. A sensation with her became a sentiment, and she never spoke until she had mingled her perceptions of outward objects with others which were the native growth of her own mind. She was like a fruitful soil that imbibed the airs and dews of heaven, and gave them forth again to light in loveliest forms of fruits and flowers. But then she was often dark and rugged as that soil, raked up and new-sown with unseen seed.
she dwelt in a cottage, whose trim grass-plat sloped down to the waters of the lake of Oldswater. A beech-wood stretched up the hill behind, and a purling brook, gently falling from the acclivity, ran through poplar-shaded banks into the lake. I lived with a farmer whose house was built higher up among the hills. A dark crag rose behind it, and, exposed to the north, the snow lay in its crevices the summer through. Before dawn I led my flock to the sheep-walks, and guarded them through the day. It was a life of toil, for rain and cold were more frequent than sunshine. But it was my pride to contemn the elements. My trusty dog watched the sheep, as I slipped away to the rendezvous of my comrades, and thence to the accomplishment of our schemes. At noon we met again, and we threw away in contempt our peasant fare, as we built our fireplace, and kindled the cheering blaze destined to cook the game stolen from the neighbouring preserves. Then came the tale of hair-breadth escapes, combats with dogs, ambush and flight, as, gypsy-like, we encompassed our pot. The search after a stray lamb, all the devices by which we elude or endeavoured to elude punishment, filled up the hours of afternoon. In the evening my flock went to its fold, and I to my sister. It was seldom indeed that we escaped, to use an old-fashioned phrase, scot-free. Our dainty fare was often exchanged for blows and imprisonment. Once, when thirteen years of age, I was sent for a month to the county jail. I came out, my morals unimproved, my hatred to my oppressors increased tenfold. Bread and water did not tame my blood, nor solitary confinement inspire me with gentle thoughts. I was angry, impatient, miserable. My only happy hours were those during which I devised schemes of revenge. These were perfected in my forced solitude, so that, during the whole of the following season, and I was freed early in September, I never failed to provide excellent and plenteous fare for myself and my comrades. This was a glorious winter. The sharp frost and heavy snows tamed the animals, and kept the country gentlemen by their firesides. We got more game than we could eat and my faithful dog grew sleek upon our refuse. Thus years passed on, and years only added fresh love of freedom and contempt for all that was not as wild and rude as myself. At the age of sixteen I had shot up in appearance to man's estate. I was tall and athletic. I was practised to feats of strength, and inured to the inclemency of the elements. My skin was embrowned by the sun. My step was firm with conscious power. I feared no man and loved none. In after life I looked back with wonder to what I then was. How utterly worthless I should have become if I had pursued my lawless career. My life was like that of an animal, and my mind was in danger of degenerating into that which informs brute nature. Until now my savage habits had done me no radical mischief. My physical powers had grown up and flourished under their influence, and my mind, undergoing the same discipline, 
was imbued with all the hardy virtues. But now my boasted independence was daily instigating me to acts of tyranny, and freedom was becoming licentiousness. I stood on the brink of manhood. Passions, strong as the trees of a forest, had already taken root within me, and were about to shadow with their noxious overgrowth my path of life. I panted for enterprises beyond my childish exploits, and formed distempered dreams of future action. I avoided my ancient comrades, and I soon lost them. They arrived at the age when they were sent to fulfil their destined situations in life, while I, an outcast, with none to lead or drive me forward, paused. The old began to point at me as an example, the young to wonder at me as a being distinct from themselves. I hated them, and began, last and worst degradation, to hate myself. I clung to my ferocious habits, yet half despised them. I continued my war against civilization, and yet entertained a wish to belong to it. I revolved again and again all that I remembered my mother to have told me of my father's former life. I contemplated the few relics I possessed belonging to him, which spoke of greater refinement than could be found among the mountain cottages. But nothing in all this served as a guide to lead me to another and pleasanter way of life. My father had been connected with nobles, but all I knew of such connection was subsequent neglect. The name of the king, he to whom my dying father had addressed his latest prayers, and who had barbarously slighted them, was associated only with the ideas of unkindness, injustice, and consequent resentment. I was born for something greater than I was, and greater I would become. But greatness, at least to my distorted perceptions, was no necessary associate of goodness, and my wild thoughts were unchecked by moral considerations when they rioted in dreams of distinction. Thus I stood upon a pinnacle, a sea of evil rolled at my feet. I was about to precipitate myself into it, and rush like a torrent over all obstructions to the object of my wishes. When a stranger influence came over the current of my fortunes, and changed their boisterous course to what was in comparison like the gentle meanderings of a meadow-encircling streamlet. End of chapter 1, volume 1